Good morning, and thank you all for coming out for today's event, hosted by the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. I'm Cliff May, FTD's founder and president. We're happy to welcome you, both in person and those of you on the live stream, for this very timely discussion on how the U.S. government can better organize to help partners improve their cyber resilience and why partner capacity building is so important for America's national security. This conversation coordinated with the release of an important new publication on the topic has been organized by FDD's Center on Cyber and Technology Innovation, CCTI. Both CCTI's Senior Director, Admiral Mark Montgomery, and its Director, Annie Fixler, are here joining us on the panel today. But our featured guest is U.S. Ambassador-at-Large for Cyberspace and Digital Policy, Nathaniel C. Thick. Prior to joining the State Department, Ambassador Fick was a technology executive and entrepreneur, serving as CEO of the cybersecurity software company Endgame, as well as an operating partner at Bessemer Venture Partners. From 2009 to 2012, he was CEO of the Center for New American Security, and before that, Ambassador Fick served as a Marine Corps Infantry and Reconnaissance Officer, including combat tours in Afghanistan and Iraq, we thank him for his service, and we're honored to have him here in this panel today. Today's discussion will be moderated by Politico cybersecurity journalist John Sakalariotis. Not so bad? Well done. All right. Who covers election security, critical infrastructure protection, and digital surveillance. Before I hand the stage over to John, just a few words about FTD for those who may be new to us. For more than 20 years, FTD has operated as an independent, nonpartisan, research institute exclusively focused on national security and foreign policy. As a matter of pride and principle, we do not accept foreign government funding. We never have, and we never will. And for more on our work, please visit our website, fdd.org, and follow us on Twitter, or X, or whatever it is now, uh, at FTD. And that's enough from me, John. Over to you. Thank you. Thanks, Cliff, and thanks to the Foundation for Defense of Democracies for giving me this opportunity to moderate today. Um, the report that Mark and Annie put out has eight broad recommendations, and one of them, I suspect, is going to resonate very strongly with you, Ambassador Fick, and that's uh, for Congress to appropriate more funds to support international cyber um, assistance initiatives from the U.S. government. You have come out in support of something similar already. Can you talk to us about your vision for such a fund and why Congress should appropriate more precious taxpayer dollars for it? Sure. Thanks, John. Uh, Cliff, thank you for the welcome. Uh, good to look around and see so many uh, old colleagues and friends in the room. And uh, Mark and Annie, I commend you on the paper, uh, which really is a terrific synopsis of, uh, of this important issue. And I don't say that only because it highlights the, the, uh, the role for, for CDP, uh, but I thank you for that. Um, in, in answering that question, John, maybe, maybe I can take uh, half a step back and, uh, and make five broad points uh, about assistance in this area from my perspective. Um, and, and first of all, though, just to, to frame it, um, I would make the argument that, um, uh, that, that we are re-emerging or we're re-entering an era of strategic competition. Maybe it was always there, but it was below the waterline. It's back above the waterline now. And uh, technology broadly is the primary arena of competition, uh, pr primary arena of competition. Um, so 
first point, um, the national cybersecurity strategy uh, calls out allies and partners as, quote, America's foundational advantage um, in the cyber domain. This is as transnational an issue as any. Uh, there's very little that any one country or a small group of countries or one company or set of companies can do on its own. Um, Secretary Blinken, when uh, we had our chief submission back a few weeks ago, uh, did make the point that strategic competition is endemic now to everything we do, um, and that tech is this is the the primary field of that competition. So, second, um, the demand for capacity building in this in this domain is enormous, uh, and it far outstrips our supply. Um, think about not only the. Uh, uh, Iranian attack in Albania, uh, or the uh, the attack in Costa Rica, uh, and very pleased to see um, Ambassador Crespo Sancho sitting sitting here. Thank you. Um, uh, our in ongoing uh, enduring support in Ukraine, um, and then a, a whole host of other of other other things as well. The the demand far outstrips our supply. Uh, third point. Um, it's easy to think about these as technology problems that therefore have technology solutions. Um, I would make the argument that actually the solutions are generally people, process, and technology in that order. Um, that it's, it's not a simple matter of deploying tech, um, which is a good thing for us. That leads to the fourth point, which is there's very little need actually to reinvent the wheel in this domain. Uh, there's a lot that the United States has done, uh, whether it's CISA's uh, industry and sector-specific work that can be templated uh, and exported, uh, or the ONCD's work on strategy and workforce development that can also be templated and exported, of course, customized for unique circumstances, but let's not reinvent the wheel. Um, and, then, and then really fifth, I mean, and this gets, that's the framing, and this gets to the, the, the fund, um, we need mechanisms and resources that are fit for purpose in this new world. Um, and, and frankly, it's not that new. Uh, we're, we're behind where we ought to be in uh, putting the structures in place. Uh, very quickly after 9-11, we revamped what counterterrorism foreign assistance looked like. Uh, and we made sure that the resources and the authorities, uh, that the mechanisms were aligned with the nation's need. Um, we are not currently aligned in that regard. And again, going back to those opening points, um, I, I, th I think we're in the midst of a phase shift here that's going to endure for quite a while. So uh, what we need, in, in my view and our view, is, uh, is the cross-cutting ability to deliver assistance in not only cybersecurity narrowly, but also digital policy and the data-rich emerging technologies like uh, AI and uh, quantum computing as they increasingly converge. Um, we need to be able to do it quickly. Uh, there's a speed problem right now. Um, we can't have uh, six, seven, eight, nine months from uh, incident to first dollar on the ground, um, as we've seen recently in a couple of these high-profile incidents. We're not moving at the speed of the adversary. We're not moving at the speed of the tech. Um, and, and then third, just to get a, a little bit more granular on it, um, we, uh, we do have a challenge with uh, current uh, income thresholds. And um, this is a little bit different from the kind of, from more traditional capacity building where maybe the greatest need is actually in lower income countries. Uh, that's not the case here, where um, we can't afford to have just a, a one somewhat hypothetical example, a soft underbelly uh, anywhere in the NATO alliance, because risk federates across relationships. Uh, so even if it's a high-income country, um, we need the ability to respond quickly. So 
We've been making that case uh, successfully internally at the department. We've been making it, I think, successfully at the White House. Uh, we've been making it successfully on the Hill. Um, I do want to thank uh, Chairman Menendez and Ranking Member Risch in the Senate Foreign Relations Committee for the, the bipartisan support for this, uh, the appropriations folks, and also uh, HFAC Chair McCall and Ranking Member Meeks. Um, this is one of those kind of, unfortunately, relatively uh, few areas where, where we have a strong, I think, bipartisan and bicameral consensus that this matters and we need to do something soon. Mark, Annie, for anybody who reads this report, one thing that becomes eminently clear very quickly is just how much activity there already is going on across the interagency from even IRS to DHS. Can you kind of grade for me the efforts uh, that the U.S. government is undertaking today and how can they do better? So first, I'll go with the how can they, how can they do better and then get in the grades. I, I think one of the keys here is that uh, is this international uh, cybersecurity strategy that uh, Nate's team is, is working on right now. It was dictated by the uh, Cyber Diplomacy Act, which was included in last year's State Reauthorization Act, which was included in the NDAA. So, uh, you know, a lot of us had been recommending this. And the idea is put state in charge, not of just State Department's international cyber capacity building efforts, but all federal agencies. And, and what I mean by that is that doesn't mean they do the day-to-day -day operations of them, but they have an understanding they can, um, you know, they, they can uh, assess, uh, organize, and then uh, develop plans to prioritize and resource across these federal agencies. And the reason they have to do that is what you were alluding to, which is that we have, um, I think we have some duplicative programs and agencies. We definitely have gaps in what we want to see done. And we don't necessarily have the focus that Nate was getting at. And Ambassador Fick is exactly right. You know, U.S. security assistance needs to have purpose. Uh, we push very hard that the purpose needs to be um, building the resilience of the of the cyber resilience of the countries that we are operating with. Uh, first and foremost, we're operating with militarily, so making sure that we have military mobility in those countries. But then secondly, that it's the ones with which we have strong economic productivity ties so that we continue to maintain our economic strength in, during a period of uh, cyber pressure. And so uh, sometimes that's poor countries, sometimes it's medium, medium economy or middle-sized economies. Every once in a while, it's a, it's a rich one. But our, our security assistance should be applied across particularly those first two groups based on the priority of the organization. So now you come back to the grading of the, of the agencies. You know, I, I think State Department had a very regionally focused program before we created CDP. It was very much in there, and I think it would then, as State Department assistance does in regional programs, go to the poorest countries first, regardless of where it is, and regardless of their actual interconnectivity and need. You know, how much need you need for cyber resilience is sometimes defined by how strong the networks are in your country, not necessarily how rich or poor the country is. And then um, I do think that there are some duplication of programs, uh, particularly across things like uh, forensics, you know, where we have programs in in FBI and in DOD uh, and in Secret Service, you know, we just need to make sure that we that with a limit, which are in the what are in the end limited resources, we're applying them properly. And then, and if I had a final thing, is we don't get scalability because we have so many agencies involved, not prioritized. State Department can give that scalability. They can say, look, we if you bring all of us. And I'm just making this number up, a billion and a half for the security force assistance across all federal agencies. That has, when prioritized properly, has impact. If it's broken up into, into silos 
and not allowed to be led by State Department or organized by State Department, you have a problem. And, and one last thought, State Department can organize this, they can propose it, they, could, they can get it ready, but they're going to need, they cannot compel the interagency into compliance, and this is true in any area. And so what that's gonna require is the, the White House, the National Cyber Director and the National Security Council and the Office of Management and Budget to be on board with this plan. So that's asking a lot from this plan coming out in December, or coming out, I hope, in December, but you know, sometime in the next uh, six or six months, that it, that it, um, that it can meet all those goals. Uh, but you know, that was our, rec our key recommendation here, and was based on our assessment of the various agencies. Yeah, I just wanted to take sort of a step back and think about like what, because we're talking about prioritizing and making um, cyber capacity efficient. So what sort of, what all falls into cyber, cyber capacity building? Um, it's the traditional stuff that you think about, which is um, sort of technical assistance training, um, assistance and, and training as regards to developing strategies and legal regimes. Um, a lot of those programs are out of state, but also out of the Department of Justice or Homeland Security, even Department of Energy has um, technical training programs. So it's all of um, those pieces. Um, and, and we also mentioned, you mentioned the IRS, which is, is just sort of an interesting thing that we're seeing initiatives out of IRS and Treasury and Secret Service that are about helping partners and allies um, learn how to sort of follow the money in cyberspace is another important piece of what capacity building is looking like sort of in today's world. Um, and all of these programs, while we talk about wanting to make them efficient and not duplicative and, and um, closing gaps, um, they, are, they are important um, because what we've learned in Ukraine is that cyber defense works, right? It is possible to keep attackers out um, and to respond quickly, um, to mitigate attacks, to recover quickly when that happens. Um, and so we want, you know, we want our allies and partners to be strong um, in that way. Um, but some allies and partners are not as resilient as they need to be. And so sometimes attackers get in um, and they succeed in really big ways. And so when that happens, um, we need the response, uh, the sort of cyber assistance ability to move quickly um, that Ambassador Vic was talking about. Um, but what we do, and what we do right now um, is often deploy FBI as one of the sort of key components. So that's sort of a second leg of the cyber capacity building stool is how we deploy FBI and sometimes other um, agencies as well to help with that investigation um, into what happened. And I think, I think it's worth noting in those instances, um, the private sector, private cybersecurity and technology companies are often really key in that investigation and also particularly key in the mitigation and recovery from those incidents. Um, and so that is sort of another piece of the cyber capacity building puzzle. Um, and then there's a third piece um, that I think is not something we traditionally think about as capacity building, but has become an increasingly important part. And that is helping partners and allies um, deploy digital infrastructure that is built using trusted and secure infrastructure, right? Because it is a lot easier to be resilient against attacks when your infrastructure does not have backdoors that allows the Chinese Communist Party to roam freely in your networks, right? So that is, a, that is a piece of capacity building that we don't really think about as capacity building, but is an important part of that. And I think a lot of those efforts really began under the Trump administration and have continued in the Biden administration. Um, and I think we used to think about this maybe four or five years ago um, as convincing partners and allies to choose national security over price. Um, and I think that's still sort of a piece of it, but an increasing piece of it is um, the sort of the way that 
capacity building and digital infrastructure, secure digital infrastructure are, are interacting. Right? There are partners and allies who are concerned about cyber attacks as a form of coercion if they choose a non-Chinese vendor. So when we engage in traditional cyber capacity building to make those partners and allies more resilient, they are then able to make additional choices that make themselves more resilient. Again, so it is sort of a, a virtuous cycle as to the, the way those two are particularly interconnected. I want to go back to the theme of prioritization. Um, Ambassador Fick, you mentioned that the demand has vastly exceeded the supply for available funds. Hopefully that will change with the new NDAA and the uh, support fund. However, I'm, I'm curious, is there kind of a recurrent delta you see in engagement with foreign partners and allies between what they want and what the U.S. believes those funds would be best used towards? That's kind of an in-country question. And as a related follow-up, um, kind of zooming out, looking at the geopolitical map more broadly, how do you think about prioritizing what will still be a limited set of funds across the globe? Yeah, um, I'm, I'm happy to answer those uh, First, may I, may I follow up on a couple of points that Annie made that I think are really important and maybe not always getting the, the attention they deserve. Uh, the first is this point about the convergence between secure infrastructure and cybersecurity. Uh, there was a, a method to the madness of putting these portfolios together inside CDP. Uh, and, and, and also the emerging tech element, again, as these data-rich technologies uh, continue to, to um, infuse both cybersecurity and, and, uh, and ICT. So, on the, on the infrastructure piece, um, it's wireless networks, but also cable and fiber, data centers, satellites. Um, it's, it's all of the elements of a nation's communications infrastructure. It's all of the, the think about it as the architecture of the internet, right? The, uh, the, the, the pipes that get the internet into your phone or into your home. Um, if we're not dealing with a trusted foundation and all you're doing is cybersecurity, then you're ensuring that you have perfect integrity of packets that are going back to Beijing, right? Uh, and so it is important to have uh, all of our cybersecurity efforts sitting atop a foundation of trusted infrastructure. Uh, so so I, I do, I think that's imperative. Um, and also the interrelationship of the two. Again, as Annie made clear, that uh, when, company, uh, when countries are making um, a choice about a, uh, uh, a tender, a bid uh, on ICT, it is not uncommon for them to be concerned about retribution uh, if, they, if they make the trusted choice, and therefore the security hygiene has to be in place ideally first. Um, so it's a very important point, the interrelationship, and I think that's not always explicitly discussed. Second, on public-private, uh, look, I was, a, I was a CEO in this space for a long time, and uh, public-private partnership was one of those phrases that made my eyes glaze over. Um, Usually it meant uh, I give the government data, the government classifies it, and I don't get anything back, um, which didn't feel like much of a partnership. Uh, that has changed fundamentally since uh, January, February of last year. Uh, I think catalyzed by the, uh, by the imminent and then, and then actual invasion, further invasion of Ukraine. Uh, so lots of concrete examples. Uh, migration of the Ukrainian enterprise to the cloud, uh, proliferation of uh, resilient satellite communications, the feedback loop that you mentioned uh, among the Ukrainian government, uh, other governments, private companies with large technology stacks widely deployed in Ukraine um, in order to deploy patches quickly and blunt cyber attacks. It's not that the Russian attacks weren't happening. It's that generally they weren't successful. Um, and, and that's a model that we need to maintain and, and replicate in other places. Um, 
So th thanks for indulging me on that. Um, on, on, on your question, um, I, th I think generally there's always going to be a delta, right, between the, the ask and the answer, uh, the bid and the ask, or the, the you know, and, and so that's, that's fine. Um, I think one of the, one of the points that um, is worth stating on that, though, is there are a lot of non-monetary benefits that the U.S. brings to bear in the course of its capacity building efforts. Um, in addition to just assistance dollars, which might be the headline value of the package, uh, we, we can bring really significant, uh, true capacity building, uh, the actual kind of left seat, right seat humans um, doing things, you know, I'll give you a, a couple concrete examples. Um, in Albania, um, uh, working hand in hand with Igli Tafa, the, the uh, uh, cyber coordinator appointed in Albania to lead their response efforts and improve the overall hygiene and capacity in their government. Uh, lots of us in the U.S. government have wrapped our arms around Igli and, uh, and are, are helping him build his kind of global network in this space, helping him prioritize, develop a strategy, make hard decisions. You know, again, you don't have to reinvent the wheel. There, there's a lot of, there's value in that kind of mentorship, but it's not captured in the dollar figure. Second example, uh, we can help these governments navigate their own technology choices, vendor decisions, negotiating bids, because the U.S. government has scale. You know, it, it might be a, a first-time interaction for these governments, but it's an iterative game for us at global scale. And so we have negotiating leverage, frankly. Uh, and so, you know, in a $25 million package, maybe we can bring 50 or $75 million of value to bear. Mark and Annie, I don't think this has come up yet, but one of the more controversial recommendations in the report, or I suppose I suspect it will be more controversial, is that the U.S. government should start training allies and partners on how to conduct offensive cyber operations. Uh, why is that not a bad idea? So um, first, I, I, want to, uh, I want to make it clear. What we do is we introduce the idea of, of offensive operations as part of the cyber capacity building effort. And I think we're very clear that there are a few places where we would green light work and a few places where we wouldn't. And so I think we break it up into, and look, a lot of, we have, there are a number of countries, there's six or seven in the world that publicly declare they have offensive capabilities, a few more that we know have offensive capabilities, but it's still a small number. But uh, countries are getting to that point where they have a reasonable capacity to develop it. And, uh, and then when countries get thrust into a situation like Ukraine is right now, they are developing a very ad hoc version of one. Um, what we argue for is there's two elements here, and, and as a former Marine, Nate will know what I'm talking to. There's force generation and force employment. Force generation is where you actually sit down with somebody and help them develop you know, the personnel, the equipment, the, the tools, the infrastructure to, to do that. And, uh, and our recommendation right now is first, out of pure necessity, which is we're not properly developing our own cyber force enough, right? We don't have the capacity to develop the cyber force, cyber operating force we need. The last thing I would ask uh, the U.S. military to do is to go do this overseas. And, and we don't do that. If, if we don't have enough of a capacity, we are selfish enough a country to not go do it in a, in a, in a third party country. Um, so we're not arguing for force generation, although I, I do recommend, I think we do recommend in the paper that, um, that one service be set aside to start thinking, we recommend the Army because they're in the best position right now, be set aside to start thinking about how you would do it, what you would go train and what it would cost resource-wise. That's a reasonable study ask of the service. 
Now, where I do think we need to get involved in offensive cyber uh, capabilities is force employment. Force employment, as opposed to force generation, which is building the forces, force employment's using the forces. Like, for example, with us, it's Cyber Command and the Cyber and the National Mission Force. Um, there, if countries are developing it or have it, I think, and they're our ally or partner, or we're in a conflict together, we have an incredibly selfish need to know exactly what they're up to and make sure that they're doing this in an appropriate way. So in that cyber employment, uh, cyber force employment, we should be working with them. And what that would really mean, I think, is ahead of time, left of bang, be working with these countries to work, you know, basically with intelligence, uh, uh, judge advocate general or legal and operational specialists from our country or, or allies and partners who, uh, who acknowledge they have offense capabilities working with this country to talk about things like um, unintended consequences, uh, collateral damage, sovereignty, you know, uh, you know, kind of the rule of law use of these forces, um, accidentally stumbling into espionage, you know, those, those kind of things, and even about how you do, how attribution is done and things like that. And, and we can do that ourselves. We could try to work with the um, Cooperative Cyber Defense Center of Excellence, uh, the NATO Center in Estonia, who does this on the defensive side already. Uh, but start to worry about that. And I think it's, it would actually be an error to not be working on this force employment training with allies and partners who we think are, are facing an adversary soon. So Latvia, Lithuania, you know, um, or excuse me, Estonia, uh, ta Taiwan, countries we think might develop an offensive capability. Neither one of those has declared that. Um, Japan would be another one, again, hasn't declared it. But to say, if you're going to do this, let's talk about force employment so that we can work together so you don't accidentally escalate us into a situation we don't want to be in. So that, that's a very, that's a nuanced answer. We do recommend offensive cyber capability uh, building, but really in the force employment area, not the force generation area. Annie. Yeah. Um, just to sort of footstomp the reason why we think it's time to really start thinking in this way, um, to, to both think about and start building a capability to do force employment, uh, sorry, yeah, force employment capacity building, um, and to start thinking about how we would do generation um, is really, again, because of what we're seeing in Ukraine, right? The Ukrainians wanted to use offensive cyber capabilities and didn't have them. And so they, they've, they've turned to sort of a cyber IT army. Um, allies and partners may do that. And so they're going to turn to vigilante groups or ad hoc sort of cyber operators. Um, and that's dangerous because those people may or may not have um, the skills. They, they may stumble into something that is quite escalatory. They might get in the way of other military operations. Um, and so if partners and allies are going to want to have the capabilities, um, they need to understand um, how they would employ that effectively. Um, and so that's, that's why we need to, we, we the US government, needs to sort of th start thinking in that direction so, so we don't leave our partners and allies to sort of fend for themselves and stumble through it. Did you have something to add or? Sure. So um, I, I do have a question. Sorry, I wasn't sure if you looked at me. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I will add something. But the, the caveat, of course, is that this generally falls under the heading of military assistance. It's outside the remit of the State Department. Um, that said, um, you know, as, as someone who's been in this industry for a long time on, on kind of both sides of that fence, I would say that uh, offensive cyber and defensive cyber are more akin to offense and defense in the World Cup than they are to offense and defense in the Super Bowl. There, it's, it is more fluid, uh, it, is, it is gradations, uh, and there are many elements of a good offense 
that inform a good defense. So they're, they're not quite as divorced as maybe rhetorically we sometimes uh, want them to be. Um, I get a lot of requests. We get a lot of requests for offensive capacity building. My general response is that is top of the pyramid as you're thinking about like the hierarchy of needs. That is top of the pyramid stuff. Let's not have that conversation unless and until the foundations are solid. Um, and, then, and then maybe finally, uh, I think it's, and, and Mark mentioned this, I think it's really imperative that any place that we entertain this conversation, um, we need to have confidence that our partner is a strong adherent to the framework for responsible state behavior in cyberspace. Um, that, uh, that, that we are uh, working only with uh, allies and partners who, who buy in and have demonstrated uh, by, by their behavior that they are aligned with the, uh, these principles governing responsible state behavior b below the threshold of the use of force. A related question, but yeah. in diplomatic circles, is there any normative pushback? Uh, so I know this idea is speculative, maybe something will happen in the future, but the U.S. has been public, at least in doctrine, about taking a more forward-leaning, some would call it aggressive, others not, approach in cyberspace. Have you encountered pushback um, on that idea in diplomatic circles, or do you think the conversation is kind of changing and people are accepting that cyberspace is, you know, things like deterrence don't exactly apply. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, look, diplomatic circles aren't monolithic, of course. Sure. Um, as, as a general comment, I, I would say that the, uh, that offensive cyber capability over the last 15 years has gradually come out of the shadows, as it should. It's not witchcraft, it's not, you know, the thing of which we shall not speak. It is a tool of national power like every other tool of national power. It's not intrinsically different from, you know, 155 millimeter artillery rounds. So I, I am of the view that uh, we should think about it and we should talk about it as a, as a normal tool of national power governed by the same rules uh, of the, uh, uh, you know, governing the use of force. And uh, it should be normalized in that sense. Can I jump in real quick? So two, two thoughts. Uh, first, I think Paul Nakasone will have a lot of great legacies uh, from his five years plus leading U.S. Cyber Command. But one will definitely be his push on the defend forward and persistent engagement uh, concepts. Um, you know, I think it allowed us, uh, I was working in the Senate at the time and we passed some legislation that, that enabled, uh, um, you know, mil military cy uh, cyber operations as, as, uh, as uh, reconnaissance, uh, approved them for reconnaissance and eventually led to an NSPM under the Trump administration that's uh, been wide, broadly adapted by the Biden administration. I think good comment there. And also def uh, Senator King, Angus King, our, uh, our CSE commission would always say, you know, he always wants to get deterrence. I would say there is some deterrence in cyberspace. I mean, there's a reason Russia hasn't used what we know. they ha We know they have malware in our systems in the United States. They're not enabling them. Part of it is a belief that we would do something back. But that offensive capability does in fact, it has allowed deterrence above some threshold. We're trying to lower that threshold, but you know, uh, of, you know, in other words, push down the level at, at which deterrence kicks in. And, and, and obviously, it's too high right now. A lot of bad things happen that shouldn't uh, and are done by countries who are our adversaries and believe they can get away with it because we won't respond. But you know, that offensive capability has an important role. And in fact, if anything, it needs to be fur further on a U.S. side needs to be further developed. And then responsibly, I think Nate hit it just right, responsibly developed by our allies and partners so that we're working together. Uh, if we want to escalate, we need to choose to escalate, not stumble into escalation. And, and, it, and, and cyber is one of those missionaries, as opposed to conventional weapons, 
where I think you can much more easily stumble into escalation. I'm going to throw the next question to the panel. Um, I want to ask about the lessons learned in Ukraine, but I'm a little boring. Uh, sorry, I'm a little tired of uh, all the discussion around that for the last year and a half. So I'm going to push the panelists to give me one lesson learned that I haven't heard a lot, at least, let's say. So hopefully something that you think has been undercovered in that whole discussion. And then relatedly, it doesn't have to be the same panelist. Um, is there any lesson learned that you think would be risky to apply to Taiwan, where a lot of U.S. policymakers and officials are now kind of turning their eyes? I'll go ahead and take the first one. Um, look, uh, and maybe this has been said, but, you know, uh, uh, a, you, know, a, uh, you know, a small investment now can give you a big payoff later. And we learned that. We, um, look, the, the Ukrainians had a cyber attache here, George Dubinsky, who was fantastic in 2017 and 18. He's now, I think, the deputy minister in Ukraine on, on, on cyber. But he, um, you know, he came to the Hill, he came to State Department, came to everyone and said, we need, not because of not Petya, but because of the two years of attacks on the electrical power grid, we need help defending against these Russian uh, uh, militia cyber activity. And he ended up getting about 40, Eight million dollars worth of U.S. assistance over three years, which, from what I can tell, we helped approve it, you know, authorize it, and then appropriate it. Then you can't really see what happens. But you know, from contracts, it looks to me like most of it went to pay U.S. companies to work side by side with the Ukrainians in and improving their cyber hygiene, but also mitigating actual problems on the on the um, uh, on their systems, particularly in their electrical power grid. This was matched by a specific DOE program that helped the Ukrainians, and then by the European. The Union or Commission kicked another, I think, 30 million in. That kind of like under $100 million worth of investment over three or four years had a dramatic impact on their ability. The, the Russians got in, and the Russians did a lot of attacks. A lot were parried, and then a lot, there was resilience and redundancy in systems to rapidly get them out. So I know we talk a lot about the post, what happened after February 22nd, but that four years of investment was a serious positive thing. And I think that's where state CDP can really be key in organizing the less costly, more efficient, um, and also, in the end, deter sometimes deterrence, although not in this case, uh, you know, building cyber resilience ahead of, uh, you know, what we'd say left of bang. Um, I'll jump in and pull a, a thread that um, Mark mentioned, um, just that um, our allies and partners particularly European allies, but not exclusively, also um, Australia and Japan, also have cyber capacity building programs. Um, and their impact in Ukraine was also important. And so we have a very sort of narrow view when we think only about what the US government is, is doing. Um, and so we're broadening that when we talk about the private sector. But still, I think we have a very US-centric perspective on what capacity building looks like. But um, our other partners and allies also do capacity building. And so when we talk about and when we think about um, making sure that our, we're deploying resources efficiently and there aren't redundancies, um, understanding that those, that our partners and allies also bring capacity building programs to the table will help us make sure we're sort of deploying these limited resources most efficiently. So I, I mentioned three things that, that probably fall into the boring and often, often repeated category, uh, the cloud migration and the, and the internal defenses and the, and the SATCOM. Um, looking out a little further, uh, something that's occupying my and our mental space um, that, that may not be getting as much attention right now is uh, at the end of the conflict, um, Ukraine is going to have one of the best trained and most operationally capable cyber armies in the history of the world. 
And um, as we've seen in the kinetic space, demobilizing uh, a capability like that can present a lot of challenges. And we should be thinking now, need to be thinking now, about uh, what happens to all of that capability and make sure that it is channeled in the right directions, not the wrong directions. And uh, I think there's an immense private sector opportunity to do that. Um, uh, it's interesting to me that uh, uh, of the many cybersecurity companies in particular that are, that are assisting in Ukraine, uh, several of them are actually building products in Ukraine. Um, not just selling products in Ukraine, but building products in Ukraine. So uh, that fact, coupled with um, the Ukrainians' demonstrated excellence in their DIA, uh, digital governance application, um, which if you're not familiar with it, I would encourage you to learn more. Um, basically, it's easier to get a driver's license in Kiev today than it is in Washington, D.C. It's easier to pay your taxes. It's easier to start a business. These are very, very low um, yeah, bars. So, all right, pick, pick a different yeah. American city. But uh, um, <clears throat> it, is, uh, it is a tremendous platform uh, to have developed uh, in the midst of a conflict. And uh, Estonia actually is customer number one. Uh, they've purchased the DIA app and are building their digital backbone on it. Um, so this is a totally imperfect analogy, but in the same way that in the wake of a Russian you know, attack uh, 15 years ago, Estonia went in a relatively quick period, thanks to good leadership and investment, f basically went from being a net importer of cybersecurity to being a net exporter of cybersecurity. Um, can Ukraine, can, can digital governance be uh, really a pillar of the post-conflict Ukrainian economy uh, in a way that both absorbs a lot of this technical capability and channels it in productive directions and also, you know, generates revenue in Ukraine. Um, that's something that, that I, I don't think it's premature to, to be really leaning into some of that right now. I'll give you one Taiwan thought. Um, I were, you know, one of the good, great examples of resiliency was the, after the loss of the, um, of the Viasat, the, the rapid introduction of, of uh, Starlink. Um, Taiwan's going to be different. Um, much like we argued FTD for pre-positioning a lot of munitions in Taiwan, because uh, there's not going to be any C-17 flights getting in once combat starts. There's, you know, anything IT hardware-wise that you want to have redundancy or resiliency in Taiwan needs to be on Taiwan before C-Day, you know, before, you know, kinetic events happen. And that is not something people actually have a lot of redundancy and they don't maintain a lot of IT hardware just laying around inefficiently because of the, the you know, 18 month, you know, the Moore's law being applied to that, equip that equipment. So the question is, how much is Taiwan willing to invest in constantly having that redundancy and resiliency for their C4I and their cyber systems? And then one other thing I'd say is many of the Starlink-like products have an amazing amount of Chinese um, produced hardware and, and software in those systems. And I'm not 100% sure how Starlink products or other type of products like that or the senior executives who run them are going to be excited about going head-to-head -head with the Chinese at, at the conflict time. It's something that's hard, hard to judge. And, and we'll see, uh, you know, how flexible and agile those companies are in coming to Taiwan's defense in the same way they did to Ukraine's when the adversary was a Russia with whom they had very few dealings. I didn't want to convey the impression that the conflict in Ukraine is over or boring. I hope that didn't come across as insensitive. Um, what does Ukraine need now? Um, what should U.S. policymakers be thinking about in Ukraine today when it comes to cyber and digital assistance? 
Well, attack them. Okay. No, um, <laughs> that, was, that was our meeting the other day. Uh, the, um, you know, I, I think, first of all, I, I want to say that the continued organizational support of the U.S. government and working with our private sector and engaging this, look, um, you know, kind of to take from, you know, a dated reference, you know, more cowbell. You know, we need to continue to do what we're doing in cyber. Look, there's a whole different discussion on other weapon systems. But in this, I think the United States, with its private sector companies, has been doing a lot. And, uh, and, I, think, uh, and I think that there's, um, you know, there's a, uh, you know, th th there's a good track, there's a good plan for success. The one area I talk about, when I mentioned that force employment, at some point, you know, we may want to start talking with the, as they begin, they're organizing the IT Army under government leadership, you know, probably starting to talk to them about force employment, about collateral damage and things like that, to the degree that that's a functional thing we can do. It's hard because getting people in and out of the country, you know, we already spend a lot of effort getting trainers, uh, getting people out to come to training and things like that. So. You know, certainly can be virtual, but I mean, it's one of these things we have to think about. But, but mo I think more of the same. This is one of those areas where I don't think there's any accusation the United States isn't providing exactly what they need to be providing. Um, yeah, I'll just uh, sort of uh, harping on the um, Cyber Assistance Fund. Um, that kind of pro programs and, and learning the lessons about how quickly we can deploy may not particularly may or may not affect Ukraine itself, because we're sort of already got a steady state there. Um, but uh, we've learned some lessons with regards to state, also with regards to CISA, about how we need to be able to move more quickly. So again, I don't know that it's going to particularly affect Ukraine, but I think taking those lessons will help us with other partners and allies as well. So hoping there's some more there. I'm running short on questions. So unless there's something that the panelists have a burning desire to share, Mark, you just... Yeah, it's one, one other one. In our paper, just because we didn't get to it, the Dep Department of Defense, and they are, of course, always a six to 800-pound gorilla sitting in a room. But I think in this area, they've actually been very good in the interagency. And it, you know, to the credit, I think a lot of it has to do with its, its kind of... You know, the cyber employment is one, one organization. You know, it is cyber command. It makes it easier to organize with the rest of the government. But uh, our Department of Defense does... Uh, it's like the federal agencies in the sense that its, its work is spread across so many different aspects. But one of the problems we have here is that they tend to eat on each other, so or feed on each other. And what I mean by that is, like we all love, we're almost breathless when we talk about a hunt forward operation. Like there's a hunt forward operation in this country and everyone's excited. Um, the problem is that hunt forward operation comes often from CMT, from teams that belong to the geographic combatant commander who should otherwise be writing a you know, be working hard on breaking into someone's rail infrastructure or airport infrastructure or something, you know, and those teams get pulled off to do this side-by-side -side training and work malware detection um, with a ally or partner. Um, and in the, the way I know that this is a tough resource is we only spend about $63 million a year on hunt forward operations. That's actually a very small number um, in DOD world. I mean, in some, you know, in some federal agencies, that's everything. But at DOD, that's pocket change. And th that money isn't going up aggressively year, uh, you know, next year because the truth is it's pulling very limited resources from other high-priority DOD taskings. So I, I love hunt forward operations. Um, we, uh, like... Uh, uh, I don't know if Nate would say it here, but I, I wouldn't mind renaming them. Um, you know, I think hunt's a tough word sometimes, but um, we have to recognize 
there's a limited capacity to that and rely on the other programs that DOD runs. They're kind of more run-of-the-mill training and exercising programs that service multiple countries at the same time in preparation for an event. And again, making that investment pre a crisis. And then finally, the state partnership programs, but get, continue to develop them. Right now, only about 20 of our states have, you know, inherently, you know, strong, you know, cyber trainable units that can go out and do cyber training. And, um, and those state partnership programs allied with our allies and partners could pick up some of this load in the, uh, in the uh, low level, in the, in the introductory and cyber hygiene, uh, hygiene training. So we want to make sure that DOD is being smart about how they use this and recognize that we can't tap into their actual primary responsibility, which is to do the operational planning of the environment, i.e. The, the targeting um, for a future conflict with a, with a major adversary. So, um, you know, that's why those things, hunt fort operations, love them, but recognize there is a limited capacity. I, I would just emphasize that, that the uh, global, global demand and support for hunt forward is very, very high. Um, I, I happen to agree with the renaming piece. I, I, I mentioned that to General Nakazoni personally. Um, Call them cyber success teams, whatever. But uh, let's make it as easy as possible for our allies and partners to, to, uh, to consume them. Um, and they, they've gone through a, a couple of conceptual shifts that I, that I think are worth mentioning very briefly. One, they no longer need to be deployed forward. They, they, can, they can do a lot of the work remotely, uh, which from a budgetary scale kind of leverage standpoint is great. Um, also, they've, they've, there's been, a, I think, a conceptual evolution from you know, proverbially fishing to teaching to fish. And so they really are a, a key capacity building tool now and a, and a very, very positive one. I guess I want to sneak in one final question before we go to Q&A. Um, the international cyber strategy, I know you still have a couple months before the deadline comes due. Is there anything you can share about where you're heading with that work or maybe lessons learned just in kind of the early drafting process? Yeah, I mean, very, very conceptually, um, and it is a little premature to get into any details, um, but we, we, we view it again as, as nested, really, and derivative of uh, the uh, national security strategy, the, the national cybersecurity strategy, and, and the, the NCS was really designed, you know, that fifth pillar, the international pillar. Um, I had partners come to me and say, look, it looks a little thin. Uh, that was by design. Uh, it is, it's designed as an API to plug in a more robust international strategy. So uh, um, it, is, it, is, it is derivative. Uh, I, d I don't think you're going to see it take us in any radically different directions. It's going to flesh out and kind of emphasize um, and, and put, in, put in place some of the more detailed uh, mechanisms to, to act on uh, things that have already been laid out in detail in the national security strategy and the national cybersecurity strategy. Just editorially, I'm incredibly impressed. You're using tech metaphors now, and you're. <laughs> uh, I won't do it again. I'm sorry. That was fantastic. <laughs> um, I think we've got some questions. And if you could please identify yourself uh, before you ask the question. Hi, Sarah Friedman, Inside Cybersecurity. Um, in the implementation plan, there is um, a section on countercrime and defeating ransomware that requires an international engagement plan um, related to ransomware and uh, cooperating in transnational cybercrime. That was due this quarter. Um, has that been made public? And if not, can you tell anything? Uh, tell us anything about timing and what's in it. Is that for me? Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, so the uh, um, I, I can't. There's not much I can share. Very little I can share. The the uh, White House owns the initiative, um, and um, 
so I think I think we're we're aware of the commitments um, in the timeline and and I've been involved in the dialogue, but it uh, it would it would not be my place to answer. Uh, in in coordination, uh, so. Hi, Sam Visner with the Space ISAC. Um, I'm interested in what other countries are doing in terms of their own policy development. What lessons are we learning from our partners and allies? I was uh, on the phone the other day with our friends in the UK. They've declared their space systems to be critical infrastructure as the EU. Um, are we looking at other countries' policy initiatives as models that we might adopt here, um, essentially for our own capacity building? Thank you. So I mean, I'll start only because I was uh, at an event yesterday on this. And so, I mean, these are two different things. This, you know, Ambassador Fick's uh, strategy is about our work with other countries. And, and, you know, part of this question is what are other countries doing? Um, there, I don't, there are other countries doing international um, capability, based, uh, capability building. First, NATO holistically does it through the CCDCOE. But in addition, the Australians are out in, in, uh, the, in, the, in, South, in the Pacific Islands, Southeast Asia. The Japanese are starting to reach out. We're seeing real effort by them on uh, strategic uh, capability building. So we're seeing other countries out there. But these are, and these are good. I mean, I think the last thing the United States would ever say is, you know, knock that off, right? Because it's, it, you know, it's, take, it's allowing us to apply our resources elsewhere. I, I do think the NATO efforts are reasonably well coordinated. There is this weird thing in NATO. When you're trying to join NATO, you're in what's called a member uh, action, a military action plan, a, a map. All the security, all the assistance you could possibly want flows into you from the treaty organization. The minute you join NATO, it, they snap the chalk line and you're done. And uh, so Montenegro, North Macedonia, Albania, they join the alliance. It, once you join the alliance, the Russians don't send you a thank you note and say, game over, you win. Uh, you know, they double down on their attacks on you. And so at the exact moment that they're most under attack. So we need to work with NATO to try to figure out how we help those countries most under siege from Russian influence operations uh, get at this issue. So I, that's where I, I, you know, I think that we could, the one place ask I'd have with NATO is, I understand you have this thing, but in, in the real world of they're under attack right now, it's not cruise missile attack, it's not fighter planes, it's cyber, continue to provide them that assistance for the first few years till someone intelligent says they're on their feet. And so that's the one area where I'd ask for more international assistance. Everything else is real value added. Hi, Suzanne Sly from The Record. Um, if this was answered in the beginning, forgive me and don't repeat yourself because I have an alternate question. But um, I'm wondering about the uh, cyber resilience funds going to high income countries and how that is justified when they have their own money and really given the drumbeat of cyber events should be spending their own money. I'm also wondering if there are any countries you've identified at the top of the list to get the first available funds. So I, I would draw a little bit of a distinction between, um, between capacity building and funding. Um, there can be significant needs in high income countries and it may not always be an issue of money, it's an issue of capacity. Uh, and urgency, uh, particularly, you know, in the context of other sort of geostrategic priorities. I, I mean, the, the example I mentioned is NATO. 
there's uneven capacity across the NATO alliance. They're all generally high-income countries, uh, or at least high-middle-income countries. Um, and in some cases, there's compelling need because of the way the risk federates across the alliance. Um, so we, we need to be able to engage there and engage quickly there. Um, in terms of prioritization overall, um, I think that it is, uh, it is not the case that there's a, there's a you know, 1 to 193 sort of prioritized list. I think it's a, it, it needs to be a little bit more dynamic and fluid than that. Um, but we have a, a, a good sense, and I don't think it would surprise you, based on, uh, based on other, other strategic priorities, kind of the nature of relationships, um, you know, assets and strategic geography. Um, uh, sometimes it's, it's the fact that a particular tender on ICT is near term. You know, there, there are a lot of factors that go into it. Uh, so it's a constant prioritization and reprioritization effort based on many variables. You know, I, I would be really surprised if an OECD 30 country received, in fact, I think almost legally they won't receive security force assistance. What they will receive is if we're doing training on strategy or norms, right. of course we'll work that together. And sometimes that looks like it's an assistance program when in fact it's a shared development expertise. Yeah, expertise. Yeah. And uh, so I, I think that's useful. What, I would say on prioritization, it's, it need, I would tie it back to what I said earlier on military mobilization. And it'd be like if Portugal and Estonia both need air defense assistance against Russia. I'm pretty sure we're going to work with NATO to get it to Estonia and not Portugal because one of them more realistically you know, has that thing uh, you know, coming at them. But uh, that, again, I, I would be very surprised if any DOD or federal agency money was going to uh, a security assistance program for a country in the top 30 OECD. Hello, Catalina Crespo, uh, I'm the Embassy of Costa Rica. Um, the U.S. has been working successfully the last year and a little bit, a few months on cyber with Costa Rica. My question is, how is the U.S., uh, or what are they doing on it, making this sustainable, not only for Costa Rica, but how are you thinking of, of doing, expanding through regions? It, 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 regional training hubs, training the trainers. How are you going to make this sustainable when there isn't a lot of money? So I wanted to see if that's something that's, that's been thought about because we're, t we're talking, I think somebody over there said, we're talking about developed countries and what we're doing, but what happens with developing countries, which are the ones that have the, the lowest capacity building and, and the money to fund all these? Um, I'll, I'll jump in on a different uh, sort of partially perhaps answer your question and then the ambassador may have more details. But um, I think there are models of regional capacity building that are starting to develop that we can think about ways to replicate. Um, and I think particularly about the Abraham Accords um, and what we're seeing about the expansion of that into cyberspace um, and the way that those, those countries are actually working together to develop platforms, to develop capabilities, to help each other um, defend against attacks. So there may be ways to sort of think about not quite hub and spoke, but um, uh, regional collaboration groups um, where we're seeing, where we have perhaps a, a more capable partner um, collaborating with less capable partners and where can we sort of emphasize and, and, and add to that regional capability. So I think there's some models we can look at to, to sort of start to build that out. I think the question's really fundamentally important. Um, and as you know, I had the opportunity to, to go to San Jose just a few weeks ago to have, in part, this discussion. And uh, we need to think about these assistance packages 
not as the initial instantiation of something that's going to be indefinitely recurring, uh, but rather as a catalyst uh, for um, a, a security posture that's going to be more enduring um, and sustainable. Uh, I think there's a, there's a regional leverage aspect to that. There's a real care in vendor selection, making sure that you're uh, uh, kind of steering the, the package to, to working with a vendor that is fit for purpose in a particular geography. Um, there are some, there's, there's an incredibly capable pool of cybersecurity talent, obviously in Costa Rica, which makes the problem significantly easier. Um, but uh, at, at, a, at a conceptual level, I think the question's absolutely the right one. It's something we have to ask and answer uh, before the first dollar gets deployed, uh, because the nature of software, right, is that the, the pace of degradation is very high. Uh, and so, um, you know, you can, you can spend $25 million, not pay attention to, pa to Patch Tuesday, uh, and pretty soon um, your, your investment is, is basically gone. So it, it is baked into our thinking and the planning from day one. Hello, uh, my name is Will Loomis with the Atlantic Council of Cyber Statecraft Initiative. A uh, question for Ambassador Fick. Um, in the implementation plan, one of the actions tasked for State Department was to lead creating interagency teams for regional cyber collaboration and coordination um, over the course of the next 16 months. Um, to the extent that you feel comfortable talking about this, can you walk through kind of how you are planning to approach that action and any potential roadblocks that you've identified or see in the future? So no roadblocks, actually. I think that... Um Again, this is one of those areas where we have a, um, you know, a, a pr pretty, pretty genuine spirit of collaboration across agencies, uh, coupled with, again, bipartisan support. Um, so it's, it's really just a question of uh, how to do it in a way that is most efficient, sustainable, um, scalable, and, and that's going to endure, uh, and, and make sure that, uh, you know, again, like in the, in the early days of crafting these new structures, um, let's, my, my bias, uh, given my background in, in a 16 month timeline to fully implement is let's pilot, um, see what works and then scale. Let's not come up with the ideal solution on paper, push it out across the entire world and across our whole government and then realize we got something wrong. Um, and so I think the, uh, the, uh, the art of this is gonna be um, piloting, iterating quickly, learning and then scaling. And um, I think we're, we're off, to, off to a pretty good start. Um, our effort to put a trained cyber and digital officer in every embassy by the end of next year is a key piece of that. Um, because again, also uh, building, building all the interagency capability uh, and, the, and the vertical expertise in Washington uh, is not nearly the whole problem. Uh, we, need to, we need to devolve the expertise and the, and the collaborative structures down and out and put them on the edge, which again, you know, for state, uh, the superpower is the fact that we've got 200, you know, interagency uh, organizations all around the world that are already set up to do this. And we're gonna use them. So I think I'm gonna take the moderator's prerogative to close things up. And first, if we could all thank Ambassador Fick for showing up today. Sure. Sure. Glad to and not to be forgotten, but the folks at FDD for putting on this event and Mark and Annie for a great report. Thanks. Right. Thanks. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks.